Hello, and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University. We're now three episodes into this series, and I think it's time to finally settle on a permanent title. Uh, I called this Historians in Action before and Working in the Historical Profession, but it's time to settle on something a little punchier and a little more permanent. I'm going to go with filibustering history, at least for today. Uh, That very well could change again next episode. But for now, I'm going to stick with filibustering history for a few reasons. Now, as British novelist L.P. Hartley famously wrote in his 1953 novel, The Go-Between, quote, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, unquote. Well, they do indeed do things differently there, and it is the job of the historian to analyze those differences and explain how things change over time. Now, an old definition of the word filibuster, according to Google, and you can always trust Google, right, is, quote, a person engaging in unauthorized warfare against a foreign country, unquote. And this seems kind of fitting with the role of the historian if we agree with Hartley's description of the past as a foreign country. While we hope that the historian's intervention doesn't reach the level of warfare, it's not hard to see the historian as a private citizen interacting with the foreign country that is the past. And, of course, there is a more modern definition of filibuster where people talk endlessly, and historians are known for being long-winded, to put it politely, so the modern definition of filibuster applies here also. But I digress. Today I'm talking to Jennifer Bryant, an instructor in the history program at Southern New Hampshire University and a compliance officer with the Colorado State Historical Preservation Office. Today we're going to talk about her background, her current position, and her advice for students looking for a career in history. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Jennifer Bryant and I am a Section 106 Compliance Manager for the State of Colorado's Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation. And what is your academic and professional background? I have a bachelor's degree in history with a double major in anthropology uh, that focuses on archaeology and a master's degree in history and public history with a graduate certificate in historic preservation. Um, I volunteered and worked at several museums in the Denver area, including Haiwan Homestead Museum, that's a small house museum, as well as the Denver Museum of Nature and Science before I graduated uh, with my graduate degree and moved to Washington. Uh, D.C. and decided to work for George Washington's Mount Vernon Estate and Gardens. And I've also served as a historian, architectural historian, and archaeologist for an environmental resource management company before I started my current position. That is kind of a roundabout way of going. That's great. (laughs) You know, I didn't really plan for this to be my career path, but I wouldn't change a thing. It's been amazing. What did you originally set out to do? Originally, I actually thought I would end up in museums for the rest of my career. I love the ability to interact with the public and share history in a hands-on environment. But surprisingly, it led me in a completely different direction that has now circled back to a similar environment in a a different way, but still very similar. And what have been your uh, research and teaching interests throughout your career? This is where my background kind of has skewed me. I I have a lot of different research interests because of 
my experiences. Originally, I started off being very interested in colonial and early Republic of America, uh, specifically the role of Virginia in that particular portion of history. Um, but since I do live in the West, a lot of my work has actually been focused on the development of the West, as well as the interaction between settlers and Native American tribes, which ties in a lot with my archaeology background. Although, funnily enough, I am actually a historical archaeologist, not a prehistoric archaeologist. That, I'm, I'm feeling a bit, little bit of nostalgia because I'm originally from California, and I did my all of my uh, master's degree work and my doctoral dissertation were both on various aspects of California history. And so I, for a long time, I was very kind of steeped in the history of the American West and race relations and the development of legal institutions, political institutions, and all of that. And unfortunately, since I moved to Ohio, I've kind of fallen out of that habit a little bit or a little bit out of that, um, that knowledge. And that's making me nostalgic. You know, it's a really interesting aspect of history that I don't think enough people really understand how detailed and just huge the field is to really understand race relations in the West because there are so many different groups that came here um, that had to interact and whether or not that interaction occurred in a peaceful manner or not is up in the arms depending on who you're talking about. But the way in which even those immigrant groups interacted with each other um, is really fascinating and the more I, I dig into that history the more fascinated I become and the more I want to learn. Yeah, the um, my, my master's dissertation was on um, California during Reconstruction after the Civil War and oh, the, wow. the question was the 14th Amendment, uh, the amendment of course that grants um, citizenship to everybody living in the U.S. or born in the U.S. regardless of you know race, nationality and all of that. And so California was – today, of course, is known as this great liberal state where, of course, that would seem like a no-brainer. But back during Reconstruction, <laughs> California actually um, did not ratify the 14th Amendment and outright rejected the 15th Amendment, which allowed, of course, everybody to, to vote regardless of skin color. And so my, my thesis was all about why did California, of all places, kind of reject these Reconstruction-era amendments? And of course, it was because they were afraid not of African-Americans gaining the right to vote, but they were terrified of Chinese immigrants being granted yes. the right to vote. And so the all of the legislative debates, newspaper debates, the newspaper editorials and all of that about these Reconstruction Amendments, they didn't care one bit about what happened in the South. They just were just very concerned with um, that all of these Chinese immigrants would vote. And of course, that gave them all the opportunity to, of course, relate all of the sins that Cal that Chinese immigrants supposedly <laughs> bring with them <laughs> and all of the evils that they in inject into California society. And it's just a, a very strange and different world than the one we live in. But it it is very complicated out in the West about how all these various nationalities work together because they, in many ways in, in the West, different nationalities and a lot more of them were thrown together than necessarily in the South where we usually think of with Reconstruction and those, those Reconstruction Amendments. That's very true, and you, you know, I see a lot of that when I look at Denver history. Um, there are various neighborhoods around town that are specific to the different uh, ethnographic groups that were living here in the mid to late uh, 1800s, and those areas actually have kept that population through current day for the most part, and it's very interesting to see just the strength of those communities and how they interact with each other and they each have 
specific months in which they celebrate their ethnic history, and those communities come together, which is much different than was back when their ancestors first came to this area. They were definitely not agreeable to um, being friends with the other the other communities that they were surrounded by, but. It's amazing to see how things have developed and changed over time, knowing just how complex that history was and how these groups really did not interact in a peaceful and harmonious manner, and now they do. And seeing how that's evolved is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Northern California uh, near a town called Chico, and in mm-hmm. 1850—I'm uh, drawing a blank. I think it was 1853. I might be getting that wrong, but anyway, there was a um, a massacre of Chinese. Uh, there was a Chinese camp of immigrants, um, and a local white mob got together and massacred. Um, I'm drawing a blank on all of the details, but <laughs> there was a there was a very violent confrontation between a white mob and uh, Chinese immigrants outside of just a few miles outside of um, where I grew up, and nobody ever talked about it <laughs> in that area. Yeah. It wasn't until I left and started studying this stuff. Um, academically that suddenly that uh, I did find out about it but it's it is a long very complicated history it is and you know we have history that a lot of people would like to ignore or kind of shove under the rug when it comes to the Sand Creek massacre back in 1864 um, but we also had issues of we had internment camps during World War II that were housed here in the state of Colorado um, so that's right you know the history goes back to prehistoric times with the Native American tribes that have been here over time and and throughout the actually have moved around within the state of Colorado. There are a large number of tribes that can call Colorado part of their homeland. Um, but then as we've moved into more modern eras, that population has grown and what we've seen is the interaction that we may not want to speak about, the the groups that were kind of pushed to the side by larger groups, the minorities that were um, that found difficulty finding their way, but you know, p- decided to keep pushing forward and wanted to make this place their home. And as a result, we have a much more open community than we might have had otherwise, had they given up. Yeah, I agree. And so that must make your job quite interesting. If you're, you're since you said that you're working for the. Um, a state historic preservation office. Um, if you could perhaps go into a little bit more detail about how did you end up in your current position, and then what what do you actually do in that position? Sure. So, I ended up in my current position uh, in large part because of my work in environmental consulting. So, uh, in when I worked as a consultant, I worked with a lot of state historic preservation offices around. Uh, the United States, but I definitely worked hand-in-hand with the Colorado State Historic Preservation Office a lot more, simply because it was in my own backyard. And uh, about two years ago, uh, the individual who I had worked with primarily the most, because she is an architectural historian, um, actually was promoted to the uh, top job within the unit that is called Intergovernmental Services, and her position as a compliance reviewer opened up, and she gave me a call and said, would you mind looking into this and seeing if this is something you're interested in? And I said, sure, that sounds amazing. And the more that I looked at it, the more interested I became, because uh, in my daily work, I get to review history from prehistory all the way up to actually now um, about all areas of the state of Colorado, different groups that have lived in these areas, 
different cities that I may not have even heard of before. Um, and I get to see resources that otherwise I would not know existed. I get to see bison jumps. I get to see um, uh, little residences where, you know, the early settlers might have originally shored up their homesteading claims. Um, all the way through Victorian era uh, buildings here in Denver. So what led me here was a very roundabout set of circumstances between uh, background in history and archaeology, as well as experience seeing a wide variety of what we call cultural resources across the country and being able to understand the significance of those resources. Earlier you were talking about how you work with in compliance, and so what are you, you know, creating compliance with? <laughs> I don't really know how to phrase that, but how, how, are, you, how are you ensuring compliance, and who, who are you uh, imposing compliance on, and how, how does that process work? So we are, as you put it, uh, ensuring compliance for federal agencies with the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. That particular act established the State Historic Preservation Office across the country. So each state has a State Historic Preservation Office, and that office is tasked with ensuring that federal agencies consider the effects of their undertakings on historic resources uh, within the what is called area of potential effect, so the area that their project is taking place within. So we ensure that they have done their due diligence identifying historic resources, as well as identifying the effects of their proposed project on those resources. And if the effects will be detrimental, we identify appropriate mitigation to try and reduce the, the detrimental effect or just record information about the resource that might be lost as a result of the action. Now this is uh, an interesting arrangement, it sounds to me. When I My doctoral dissertation was on environmental regulations and environmental policy making in California in the 1960s, mm -hmm. 1970s. And so a big portion of my work, of course, was on federalism and how mm -hmm. the development of the national level EPA, of course, had dramatic effects on state environmental regulations across the country. California was one of the few exceptions, though, because California had stricter environmental regulations than uh, than the, the EPA wanted. And so California was able to kind of do its own thing, but the EPA still was able to kind of order other states to do what they needed to do. It sounds kind of like what you're doing is kind of the opposite. It sounds like, is this where an issue where a state level office is able to kind of override a federal program, or, or am I just misunderstanding? No, it sounds very much like that's something we could do, but in reality, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, which is what I work with daily, is actually a procedural law reg rather than a regulatory. Okay. So we just ensure that the agencies follow the appropriate procedure and take these concerns into account. In the long run, it is the federal agency's decision whether or not to move forward with the action. They don't actually have to listen to what we say. They have at least with their final steps. They have to listen along the way and let us know that they've heard us, but they don't have to follow our recommendations in the long run. Okay, but they're supposed to at least take the state concerns into account. They are, and typically most agencies would prefer to work with the state and keep a good working relationship, so they try to work with us as much as possible rather than just 
preemptively saying, well, we're going to do what we want to do. Most agencies don't do that because they want to do what's right for the resources, and they would like to have our help in doing that. Okay, I got you. That, that sounds a lot like the... Um kind of the relationship that I was talking about with my uh, dissertation. So it sounds like you have a lot of interaction with uh, Colorado and federal agencies. Do you have any interaction with other with other states' historical agencies? I do. You know, I had a lot more when I was a consultant because I had to deal with them on a daily basis. Um, we, I am part of what's called the National Council Conference, the National Conference on State Historic Preservation Officers we receive updates from other states and we speak with other states regarding issues or concerns that we come across. So we do interact with other states or preservation offices, not as regularly as we might like. I, I do interact fairly regularly with Utah and Wyoming and uh, New Mexico because our borders um, about each other and we actually have agencies whose lands cross those borders. And so when there are projects that are occurring uh, in those particular areas, we will work with the state uh, historic preservation officers from the other states as well to ensure that we have a cohesive discussion moving forward that everyone's on the same page. What do, so what is what does an average day in your position look like? All right, so I know everyone says there's no average day. Well, in compliance, it really <laughs> That's what isn't. Everybody well, says, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know everyone says every day is different. Um, in compliance, it really is because every day. My inbox is flooded with additional projects that agencies are undertaking within my state. So a typical day is I get to the office prior to any of the other agencies coming into the office so that I have a few hours that I can get work done um, before they start giving me a call asking questions or concerns. Um, but my day starts with identifying any additional projects that came in between when I left the office the day before and when I come into the, day, the office the next morning and prioritizing those projects according to deadlines. So under the law, our office only has 30 calendar days to respond to any project that is provided to our office for review. So we have a very fast burn on everything that we have to review. And so every day I make sure I'm up to date with what needs to be reviewed and I organize according to whether or not I have am getting a little too close to those 30-day reviews or not. Um, our office is actually really lucky that we have enough people that we've been able to flip most of our responses within 10 days instead of 30, but you can imagine how hectic that makes things. Um, yeah. It's a little crazy at times, but it's great. So I, I organize and prioritize my schedule. I see whether or not I have any meetings with agencies to discuss projects. Um, oftentimes, upwards of three to four times a month, I go on site visits to see um, project areas in person to get a better understanding of what's going to be done in that area and the resources that will be affected rather than just relying on paper information. Um, and then I sit through typically several meetings a day, um, either internal with our office discussing projects amongst ourselves if someone, a reviewer has any questions that maybe another reviewer could answer or shed light on. And then I do the actual paper review of the documentation that's been submitted to our office. And so you, you said that you occasionally do some field work. Do, is this going to be uh, statewide? Like, could you be called to any part of the state, or do you break it up into certain regions? Some states actually do divide it by region. Um, Colorado does not. We actually divide it according to our specialty. So. I primarily focus on the built environment and then also work with archaeology when necessary. I have one other individual who also works in the built environment. However, he does our he administers our uh, 
historic tax incentive tax credit program. So he's a, very busy doing that and doesn't do as much review of um, traditional 106 projects. And then we have three staff archaeologists who review the archaeology projects. But I do typically work across the entire state. So I, it's not uncommon to find me uh, over in the Grand Junction area or down in the southeast in Lamar. Um, so we do, we do work throughout the entire state. I, I work from home in uh, central Ohio, and it, it sounds really cool being able to, you know, get out and see other, other parts of the state and all that and get paid for it. It's absolutely wonderful. You know, I traveled as a consultant, and when I took this job, I said, I don't want to do any more traveling because I had been traveling for the better part of eight years and not really spending any time at home. And when I took this job, a, a large portion of that was great. I get to stay home, work, you know, in a specific place. I know where I'm going every day. The more I've been working in this job, I don't have to travel a lot, but I travel just enough to see amazing parts of the state that I hadn't seen, I'd only heard about. And it's becoming more and more enjoyable as time has gone by to, to, to get back into that travel schedule. So I absolutely adore it. And it's not too much travel. It's kind of just enough. It reminds me of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It's not too little. It's not too much. It's just right. So now that all of your listeners here are a bit jealous of the fact that you get to travel the state and deal with, you know, historical topics all the time, which is kind of, in, in, for many people, kind of a dream job, what types of, what kind of advice do you have for students that would, that are looking to, you know, kind of follow in your footsteps a bit? Don't close yourself off. Be open to any opportunity. A lot of times when we study history, we kind of get into our little niche of background knowledge, the things that we love, the the area of focus that we want to have our research be in. And that's wonderful, and I definitely think that is something we should do. I definitely have those aspects. Um, but don't limit yourself. So really think widely. If you're interested in maybe looking at buildings, take a few architecture classes. Take, you know, the history of design and buildings here in, in the United States or Europe or whatever your interests lie in. Um, if you're interested in geology, keep that in mind as well because we do a lot with geology, understanding how landscapes impact the way that people have lived in, in certain areas because you can't live in certain areas if there's not water and you can't live if you can't grow food or there's not plentiful um, food that's already available uh, in the form of animals. Um, so kind of keep your, your eyes open. Don't, don't say no to an opportunity just because it may not fit exactly the mold that you're looking to. Um, and I would definitely recommend that if you would like to, to kind of head in the direction of working with historic preservation laws, do, do some research and understanding what those laws entail because too many people have heard about the law but don't actually understand what that law entails. Um, and how it actually influences the field of history um, because so much of what we know actually has come out of Section 106 compliance. The number of resources that have been identified in states across the country largely come from compliance with Section 106, but you might not know that if you don't understand the complexities of the laws and what it is these agencies have to be doing and provide what they have to provide um, to state historic preservation offices to exhibit their understanding of those resources. So kind of keep your eyes open and don't, while you can focus on that little group that you find that particular aspect of history absolutely fascinating, don't, don't close the door on um, maybe something that you never would have considered previously.
Okay, well, I think that is a good place to end it. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. And thank you all for joining us today. Today I was talking to Jennifer Bryant, an instructor in the history program at Southern New Hampshire University and a compliance officer with the state of Colorado. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please contact me at r.denning at snhu.edu. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.